Everybody, welcome back to another unbelievable, unbelievable, really one of the best episodes. This is going to be incredible. Am I pumping it up too much? I know. Seriously, set the expectations higher. <laughs> welcome to another rousing episodes of Their Rabbis and They Are Married. And I have to say they are because it's like the amount of apostrophe work I've had to do with EIR, RE, and then like some congregant finds, I know you'll find it. I know you'll see it and you'll find it and you'll get me on it. Okay. So I, I have it perfectly down. I'm ready. They, I want to just say they are, they are rabbis. I never realized that this would be a problem with our title. Well, hello everyone. I'm Rabbi Rachel. <laughs> I feel like we start every episode with a grammar lesson now, now that we changed. The I can't name. stop thinking about it. It's, it's an obsession. It's good that we have a, 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 those, a special guest who can talk about much more than just my obsessions with grammar. And that is the amazing Dr. Ashley Ron Gableman. We are so excited to have you on. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, guys. I'm so excited to be here. Um, so I am a clinical psychologist. I live, I live in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I'm the director and owner of Cleveland Center for Cognitive Therapy, which is a private group practice where we treat anxiety, depression, addiction issues, all sorts of things. And I'm also an assistant professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. So I teach residents and fellows and all that good stuff. And most importantly, am I allowed to say this, that I am Rabbi Rachel's sister. <laughs> Yes, for those of you who uh, remember my maiden name, Braun, you may have guessed that from the description. It's so good to have you on, I'm Ash. so excited. I love your podcast. I'm very honored to be here. Ashley was one of our very first listeners. She was an early adopter of Living Jewish. Right, it wasn't called <laughs> their rabbis and they're married at that time, back in the day. She approved of the new name. Do you approve, I should ask you, do you approve of the yeah, new name? Yeah, I have to say, I didn't notice the new name until kind of recently when I was, because I haven't been on podcasts. I've been listening to audiobooks. I'm sorry, but I'll get back to it. And Reading. I know, I know. <laughs> so I was scrolling and I was like, oh, I like the new name. And there's like a new picture, I think, too. I like it. Thanks. I think we looked very serious in that picture. I think we need a more fun we picture. We need like a more fun picture. How about their rabbis and they're married and they're fun? <laughs> Believe it or not. Every couple of weeks, we just add another descriptor. Oh, man. Oh, oh God. Man. Well, before we get into our topic of today, I think we really have to really look at the important topics. Uh, Ashley, would you like to share the nickname you have for your sister in case that say, comes out? I was going to say we might have to have a disclaimer in case I Ashley was trying starts. so hard. I was going to like go. I was really going to not say it the whole time. However, if I'm invited to, then I guess I will. I, I have a hard time calling my sister Rachel, let alone Rabbi Rachel, because really her name is Smushy, and that's the only thing that my <laughs> kids know her as. I don't think if I said Rachel, they would even know who I was talking about, because you're Smushy. Our daughter Hadassah the other day, we had been FaceTiming with uh, Ashley's kids, with my nephews, and she turned to me after we hung up and she said, 
why do Mason and Log- Logan call you Aunt Smushy? That's what they think my name is. The best was after I got accepted to rabbinical school. And uh, Ashley, back when you used to write on Facebook walls, Ashley wrote on my Facebook wall, yay, Rabbi Smushy. <laughs> that's it. That's who you are, Rabbi Smushy. Now, most importantly, do you have a name for Ashley? I don't know if there's a name I'm for Ashley. I'm the creator of the names in our family, Marcus. Uh, so, you, you know, Smushy's the one that's stuck the most, but our brother was John Geranium, and that went with a song. I won't sing it. We, we've got all sorts of names. <laughs> That'll be for our next <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we'll have Corey on, and we can sing the John Geranium oh song. God. Oh, <laughs> I like John Geranium. I can call him that. Yeah, there you go. Well, let's delve in. What's our topic today? What is our topic today? Um, so we have a really important topic. It's always fun to talk and and joke, and uh, you know, unfortunately, we really can't speak without joking. So we will continue laughing a little bit, but we do have a very serious topic today. Uh, and I, I, I saw this topic. I saw this warning put out by the U.S. Surgeon General, and it really woke me up. I listened to. A bunch of podcasts on this specific warning as that's how we research these days. We just listen to podcasts. So um, I went further in depth and uh, it really made me nervous. I gave a sermon about it in synagogue um, and just been thinking about it a lot. And that topic, the, the warning um, that came up from the Surgeon General was that there's an epidemic of loneliness. Uh, an, an epidemic that's causing, you know, a lot of psychological issues. Um, and physical and, health and, issues. Yeah, the physical health issues was very concerned, like heart, like more chance of heart issues and just the physical impacts of being lonely. Um, and then in a separate, in a separate thing that I saw, I was listening to uh, the Ezra Klein show, which is a, a favorite of mine, uh, New York Times uh, a guy. And uh he uh, interviewed um, Dr. Jean Twenge, who is a research psychologist, um, and she was talking about the anxiety and depression crisis amongst our teenagers. And, and for me, in some ways, I think they're, they're, they're linked in some ways that uh, from 2011, uh, like all of a sudden, the, the numbers in terms of anxiety, depression uh, shot up like crazy um, and, and in a non-cyclical way. Sometimes these statistics are cyclical. Um, but this is completely off the charts and it's just going to keep, 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 it's going to keep, it's, it is keep going. It keeps, it keeps going up. Right. Um, and, uh, the thing that really stopped me like in my tracks here, um, was at least she said that according to the CDC, uh, nearly 25% of teenage girls made a suicide plan in 2021, 25%. I mean, that's just one in four. Uh, and, and it just, Stop me in my tracks and saying, you know, we got to do something about this. And and especially as as rabbis and and as a synagogue community, um, we as in as, as Jews need to have a response to that. And of course, you know, the first step, besides looking, of course, to our tradition, which we're going to do today, is is of course include an unbelievable psychologist in this who uh, works on these very issues with uh, numerous clients um, and has studied this profoundly. Um, because I I think. For, for Rabbi Rachel and I, like anytime we get into like psychological territory, anytime we get into like serious sickness, like it is a rabbinic responsibility that we um, contact a professional, um, make sure that what we're saying is is checked and, and critically uh, analyzed by, by research, by the, the current research and everything like this. So we're really, really happy to have uh, Dr. Braun Gableman here on uh, for uh, to, to talk to us about this. We're really going to look at Jewish responses 
um, to depression, to loneliness, um, and sort of what Judaism has to say about this whole shebang. Um, and of course, we'd love to hear uh, uh, Dr. Braun Gableman's. Should I say Dr. Ash? Dr. Braun Gableman sounds very funny. Yeah, nobody uh, calls me that. When I Sometimes people will go with Dr. Braun, but mostly it's just Ashley. So you can uh, just go with Ashley. Ashley. Okay. Well, if we're going to be Rabbi Rachel and Rabbi Marcus, well, we'll do Dr. Ashley if that's we right. do Dr. So Ashley. Keep our titles. And- I also, honestly, can I be can I be honest about this? Uh, uh, but like, I just feel like also as a woman too, like I don't want to like take away the title. I want to keep the title. That. So very important. So Dr. Yeah. Ashley, we're going to also have Dr. Ashley telling us um, psychological tips and and uh, kind of. I would love to hear her like psychological responses to some of these Jewish teachings, um, and so we can kind of make sure we have that dialogue. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think that well, oftentimes we see that Jewish wisdom and uh, contemporary psychology often really do go really well together and go hand in hand. And sometimes we always laugh when we'll like see these studies on, you know, psychology today or, or some of these pop psychology sites that will be like, you know, psychologists say that you should unplug for 24 hours every week. And we're like, yes, that is called Shabbat. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's always nice when there you get kind of that reinforcement, but sometimes certainly um, our ancient wisdom and our contemporary wisdom don't necessarily align. And I think it's important to acknowledge those times too. Right. Um, before we jump into some of the Jewish texts, I just, we, we referenced some of the research about the effects that the Surgeon General came out with about the effects of loneliness. I just wanted to bring our attention to some of those. Um, so in the, the summary of the report on the um, Health and Human Services website, it says, the physical health consequences of poor or insufficient connection include a 29% increased risk of heart disease, a 32% increased risk uh, risk of stroke, and a 50% increased risk of developing dementia for older adults. Additionally, lacking social connection increases risk of premature death by more than 60%. So even if we say, you know, that there's a difference between you know, correlation and causation. And we want to delve into kind of some of the statistics. We're not statisticians. We're not going to necessarily delve into the uh, the numbers that they came to. But but regardless, those numbers are quite, quite striking. I mean, those are those are real serious uh, physical health effects that are coming out of the, the epidemic of loneliness, according to the Surgeon General. Yeah. Yeah. So so Dr. Ashley here, what, what, what do you what, what's your first impression of this? Is this a surprise to you? Is this like what was a surprise to me was that the Surgeon General actually came out with this report and this uh, calling it an epidemic. I mean, that is huge and so important that people. I think there's been like a shift in, I think, how people think about mental health and talk about it. It's becoming much more accepted widespread for the most part to acknowledge that we all have mental health, that it's just like we all have physical health. Um, And so that was what was most striking to me was that they actually came out, made the big deal about it that it deserves. The idea of loneliness being a huge problem was not as surprising to me because that's so much of what I see every day. And especially with COVID, it's just been like, exacerbated so much. It's off the charts, I think, for a lot of people. I think we're kind of getting back into real life again. But that's another thing I've seen that we don't necessarily have to get into is like that is hard for a lot of people, just getting back into real life after being so isolated for a couple of years. 
Yeah. I mean, we see that a lot at the synagogue, right? We'll see people and I'll talk to people and they'll, they'll say like, oh, I, I used to be a Shabbat regular. I used to come to in-person programming or services at the synagogue and I, and I just haven't reoriented mm-hmm. my life back to it yet. Um, and we'll often see that once they try it once, once they come back once, they remember, oh, right, this has a huge effect on my life. It's it's a real net positive and it's something I want to get back to. But taking that first step back in and you know, reorienting your life back to community, I agree, I think it is a real challenge for people. Well, and that's something in. I work on with people across the board, no matter, honestly, no matter what the issue is, is that the behavior has to come first. Like we can't think our way into doing the things that are good for us, that's always what happens is even if we don't feel like going back to synagogue, if we go, then it's like, oh, I did the behavior and now my feelings are following. So that is, yeah, kind of how it has to go a lot of the time. <laughs> that is such a Jewish teaching. Yeah, that is the most Jewish thing <laughs> We say we say that to you know to people all the time, whether they be kids or teenagers or adults, and they'll say like, "Well, I just don't feel anything when I pray." And we say, "Well, Judaism tells you you have to pray anyway, right? Just just pray, do the action, and the feelings will come." Uh, there's the famous teaching that the um, the Jewish people when they were receiving the Torah on Mount Sinai, they said, "Naaseh v'nishma," we will do and we will hear, or we will do and we will understand. And the rabbis extrapolate from that, do first, do the action first, and then the understanding will come or the feelings will come. Um, that's, yeah. In so some ways, maybe that's why like Judaism isn't so obsessed with doxologies and, and, and just, you know, uh, lists of beliefs and everything like that, because really our lists of our beliefs are, are what we do. What we believe is what we do. And, and that so much informs, I mean, my, I, that's so much why I start my day by saying I don't alum every morning. Um, you know, the famous prayer that's talking about all the different uh, aspects of God, because that's not what I believe. That's actually what I want to believe, right? So therefore I say it, right? And that's that's essential. And I wanted to also say, like I saw on, I looked up your 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 psychology report, as you know, online, um, uh, and and it, it said cognitive behavioral therapy. And I'm like, I, I suffer from OCD. I you know I've got, you know, I've gone to a lot of work in this and I talk about it all the time. And that's like such a big thing. Like, in my in terms of the cognitive behavioral therapy to become better, I, I had to do certain actions, even though I didn't feel like them or didn't feel I actually felt like they were going to make it much worse, uh, my sickness, but it actually made it better. Uh, and, and that's so, so hard for us as human beings to, to, to do that. We always think we know how everything's going to be. before. And that's like especially true in OCD. Because your mind is telling you certain things are dangerous or certain things are going to go badly if you don't do certain things. And you're right. The only way to kind of get better is to do the behavior anyways. And then your mind starts following or you develop a different relationship with those thoughts. But yeah, it has to be the behavior. Yeah. So really yeah. essential. And I mean, we'll get into all of it, but I would imagine that that's true for a lot of, I mean, it might be particularly true for OCD, but you know, we, I hear all the time on, you know, blogs or, or posts of people who suffer from depression, the, the phrase depression lies that, you know, your depression is lying to you. Your anxiety is lying to you. Like it's, it, and that's really challenging when you feel like you can't trust your own mind, your own brain, but that's, it's, in some ways, it's not your brain, it's not your mind, it's the depression or it's the anxiety. It's kind of this intruder inside of you that's lying to you. Um, and and you have to you have to work on on changing the behavior, even when everything inside of you is telling you 
not right. to. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, depression and a lot of other mental health conditions, they do. They sort of hijack your brain. And it truly feels that what your mind is telling you is true. So, you know, it's a real challenge. But I think even for people who don't have a diagnosable mental health condition, this happens to all of us. You know, how many times have like, you know, you thought about something one way and then you come to see that it's like totally not the case at all. And you were living in like this alternate reality in your mind. Like somebody doesn't text you back and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, they're mad at me. What did I do? And they were busy with their own life, you know? A hundred percent. Yeah. How many emails have you received where you're like, I cannot believe they said this to me because you're reading the tone into the email when it was, it's totally working, working it up in your own experience in your own mind. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, like this is, I never thought of it this way when, but now I'm hearing from you and like, like it's such a problem with our society, especially when it comes to religion, because I'm, I'm in the process of helping people have faith. Like I'm in the profession of helping people have faith and believe in mystery and believe in something beyond what they see um, and, and, and beyond maybe what's rational at the, at the particular moment. Um, and like people have such trouble doing that because they trust their mind and say, well, my mind is telling me this thing. And I'm like, well, your mind is not, what you're thinking is not the end, right? <laughs> like there's so much beyond that. And, and, so, and, and our minds are so limited and fallible um, and so sometimes it really makes sense to have tradition and to have outside sources we rely on, right, to to help us to um, understand the truth and understand what's actually most most helpful for our lives. Yeah. And like that is, at least to me, not a clergy person, but like that is what spirituality is. It's something that there's like more to it than just our own minds and just ourselves, whatever that is. And like getting outside of our own minds, getting someone else's thoughts into our own head, whether that's from, you know, reading the Bible or just reading an inspirational verse or talking to someone that you trust. But like getting out of our own heads is so important, especially with the topic of loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's jump into our topic here. Yeah. So I figured what we do, we'd start with some some common, I would say, Jewish ideas about how we sort of deal with this, um, and 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 things I use, and I think I'm sure uh, Rabbi Rachel uses as well, um, and thinks about, and are really like important principles in my life that I sort of stand by. And if you're probably around me enough, you'll hear me quoting them all the time, um, and and that really I think help me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I certainly suffer from anxiety as I, as I spoke about, and they've certainly helped me, um, in, in some of them. And also just some of the normal ways that we all as human beings, uh, deal with us. I've also saw them, um, help many congregants out as well, um, who have come to me with, with, with these issues. Before, before we delve in, I just want to lift up the disclaimer that you kind of referenced at the beginning, but I want to make really clear that, um, we certainly do not want people walking away from this podcast or any conversation with us and saying, I don't need, uh, to reach out to mental health professionals or, or to, to work on mental health resources because I have religion or because I have my rabbis. We make very clear that 
Um, we think that the two go hand in hand and that there are, there is a lot of complementary um, resources that people can get a lot of, can maybe like triple their benefit by going to both mental health resources and spiritual resources. We think that they're really helpful and can work hand in hand together, but that one is not a replacement for the other. So while we think that we can glean mental health wisdom from Jewish spiritual texts, um, that's not a replacement for um, for really working with professionals, mental health professionals on, on whatever it is that you're dealing with in your own, in your own life. Yeah. Really, really, really important. So, okay. So let's, let's start this up. So I think the first, for me, the first thing that comes to mind, the kind of the Jewish principle that comes to mind is this, is this passage from, uh, Perkei Avot, um, that says, um, you know, uh, that talks about this attribute of people being sameach v'chelko, right? Being, uh, joyous with whatever their portion is. And we're going to have to talk about this. And I'm sure I, I know, uh, Dr. Ashley, you have a lot of thoughts on, on this of what do we mean by happiness, right? Like, is it like I'm jumping up and down, happy, happy, or is it like more of a content, more of a, a, a sort of a, a background kind of uh, thing? What are we talking about in terms of joy? But but Judaism constantly talks about this extreme uh, value of Sameach V'chelko, um, the one who's joyous with their portion. And one of the famous things, kind of the lines of the Talmud that, that constantly sticks out at me um, is uh, this passage that says, you know, even if you work really, really hard and you work all your life to attain your dreams, you will you will die with at most achieving half of what you ever wanted to achieve. And if you achieved half of it, that's unbelievable. And n- almost no one will achieve that. And it's like really helped me to attain this thing of Samech Vachelko, you know, whatever the portion that we have, uh, we are, we can find contentment in it in that regard. Well, to me, that sounds like gratitude. And that's huge. I always am, you know, recommending to people or encouraging people to view things through a lens of gratitude, to get into a practice of consciously thinking of the things that we're grateful for, writing it down, saying it out loud, and being really specific about it too. And it can be small things, but the more that we are in touch with our gratitude, then, you know, it really makes a big difference in how we think about things and how we see things. And the other thing that it makes me think of when you talk about a person dying with at most half of their desires met is to me that that sounds like, oh, that person's really living their life. They're like really striving and trying to do the things that are important to them. And again, that's like, that's hugely important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think back to, uh, I mean, just like the example that comes to mind is Moses, right? Moses had his whole life and the one goal was getting the people to to Israel and then God has to tell him at the end of his life, you're not actually going to enter the land of Israel. You can <laughs> you can stand on a mountaintop and you can look at it, but you are not ever going to step foot in Israel after yeah. you have gone through your entire life for this one purpose and this one goal. Um, and that seems to be like really striking to me. I think what what I love about this idea of being happy in your portion or content in your portion and that you'll only have half your desires met is that like you can acknowledge, yeah, that's really disappointing. Like it's only like, it's not saying, oh, but if you change your perspective, you really have met all of your goals and you've really met all like, no, it's disappointing. You had a goal and you're not going to achieve it at the end of your life. Like that is really disappointing. And I'm sure that comes up when you, when you counsel people on gratitude, like 
say being able to acknowledge the things that you're grateful for doesn't counteract the things that are really disappointing in your life or the things that are really hard or really tragic in your life. Like those, the, I think that sometimes we um, fall into the trap of thinking like, well, if I let myself feel happy or let myself feel content or gratitude, then like I'm not being truthful about the situation or I'm, I'm just like putting like rose colored glasses on. And I don't think that's what any of us are recommending. We like are saying, yeah, life can be really hard and disappointing and you're going to be striving for things you'll never achieve. And like, if you acknowledge that that's what life is and that you can be happy with what you do have, then, then you'll go a long way. Beautiful. And I also wanted to point out, by the way, the, the phrase actually, I looked it up. I, I had it in my head for a second. Ezehu Ashir, who is rich, and it's like specifically uses the word for uh, monetary wealth, right? Um, which is like, who is really actually wealthy? The one who's Sameach Bechelko. I just wanted to point that out. No, and I think like going back to what you're saying, Rabbi Rachel. Uh, <laughs> you were about to say, it was so close. I was about to say, Rabbi. <laughs> It's okay. We're all in for it. We're all here for it. I don't want to undermine how well, amazing you are by calling you smushy. But anyways. That's why she's amazing. That's she's true. That's smushy. true. Um, no, but I think you are bringing up such an important point that it is. We can't skip over the step of acknowledging when we are disappointed or when we are having difficult feelings. And uh, if anything, there's this like culture of toxic positivity that drives me nuts. And some of my patients would kind of like poke fun at me a little bit because, you know, they would get used to hearing me say in groups, like happiness isn't really the goal here, you know, and it's not like I trying to always be positive about everything. There's objectively things in life that are not positive that we should not feel positive about. And trying to feel positive about it just makes us feel like we're doing it wrong. So I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, so I'll ask you, if, if happiness is not the goal, what, what do you think the goal is? I think living your life according to your own values is the goal. And uh, that often comes with really difficult feelings. I mean, you and I talked about it. I'm sorry, I have to. But you and I talked about it when <laughs> I was deciding to leave a job that I loved. And it was really hard for me. I had a lot of really difficult feelings about it. And if I only went according to, well, I should feel happy. Well, I was pretty happy at my job. I was pretty content. So I never would have left. But then I wouldn't have experienced this really new, exciting adventure that I'm having in my career, which by the way, comes with a lot of really difficult thoughts and feelings too. But to me, that's what I'm choosing. Absolutely. I always think about that when we think about the Jewish calendar, we're about to enter into the heat of summer, which in the Jewish calendar also comes with really the saddest moments on our Jewish calendar. It comes with the 17th of Tammuz and then Tisha B'Av, which commemorates the destruction of the temple. And I, we always say like, so often in our society today, we we want to shy away from like it's such a it's a hard sell. Tishabov is a hard sell in our society today to say we want you to have a whole day when it's 
sunny and bright and the world seems happy, we want you to have a day of real sadness. We don't have a lot of sad days on our calendar. We have sol- We have a lot of solemn days on our calendar, but this not is a lot bitterly of- sad. Right, not a lot of sad days. This is a sad day where we sit in the destruction of everything. We sit in like the worst that humanity and a lack of faith can can bring into the world. Um, but I think it's so important. I think it's it's that antidote antidote to the t- culture of toxic positivity that you were talking about. The fact that our Jewish calendar has built into it days where you're supposed to feel incredible, like ecstatic joy, and days where you're supposed to feel utter sadness, and then all of the days in between. I think that's actually really healthy. So I think this is a good kind of segue, honestly, um, into our next uh, thinker and our next uh, piece of Jewish wisdom, which is which is Rabbi Nachman. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov is a, a famous Hasidic Rebbe, uh, famous uh, spiritual Hasidic master, live only, I think, for like 35 years. Unfortunately, he died from tuberculosis at a very young age. But his amount of teaching that he did in that time that was absolutely revolutionary um, is is astounding. Still one of the, the, the most masterful, I think, Jewish theologians, uh, at least in the past 400, 500 years. Original, innovative. And what's amazing about him, um, according to at least uh, Dr. Arthur Green, a great scholar of Judaism and, and Hasidut, um, is that he actually suffered from depression. And that actually informs a lot of his writing, his struggle against sadness, uh, his struggle, struggle against um, the anxiety he felt. There's also some thoughts that he struggled, that he actually was a homosexual um, and uh, that that, of course, was really hard at that time and struggling with those feelings as well. And for him, burying them, unfortunately. So you know, that that anxiety uh, is is constantly present within his writings. Uh, but because of that, uh, he offers uh, many, many unbelievable insights about how to deal uh, with deep, deep sadness and deep, you know, I, I'm sorry, I'm using sadness and depression sort of interchangeably here, even though they're different. Um, but, um, you know, how he sort of dealt with this. Um, so one thing that he really differentiated from um, was this idea of how helpful and important it is in serving God to be brokenhearted, right? And, and he would constantly quote, quote the line, God loves the brokenhearted from the Psalms, right? That that how important it is to be brokenhearted. But on the other hand, how destructive depression is towards serving God and, and utter sadness, right? That 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 is, he would actually quote um, one of the great mystics of all time, the Arizal, uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, which, which said that you can't actually achieve prophecy right? Without being happy in some way, or at least finding like God, you just can't, you can't be in relationship with God at that point, which is like so extreme. I think Ruby Nachman sort of opens up that teaching by saying, but you can be brokenhearted, right? And being brokenhearted is productive. Being brokenhearted can make you a better person and is where we can pull those feelings of sadness into. Um, but, but just uh, depression, unfortunately, just shuts us down. So much so where he actually said at one point, mitzvah liot simcha tamid, right? Which he said, it's a mitzvah. I can't, I have to say it like a Hasidic Rebbe when I say it, tamid. <laughs> it's a mitzvah. It's an obligation for, for a person to be happy always, which, you know, we can argue about forever. Um, and, and that definitely, uh, pos- uh, the toxic positivity is definitely in there as well, um, but is, is also an important teaching of his. Um, so, uh, what about these teachings? What do they What do they do for you here? Yeah, I mean, Ashley, I'd love to hear what you think about like, is there productive sad? Like, is there productive brokenheartedness, and is that different than feelings of of unproductive depression? Oh, absolutely. I mean, 
to me, brokenheartedness sounds like, again, somebody's living their life and taking chances and being vulnerable because you can't be brokenhearted if you never put yourself out there, you never take risks, then that's a safe life. But it's also comes with its own stress because you're not living your life as much as you really could be. So yeah, I mean, I think brokenheartedness to me sounds like someone's living their life, being willing to take those chances versus depression, which I want to be careful not to make it sound in any way like a person who's depressed should be blamed for that because it's so painful to have depression. And a big part of that pain, I think, is people getting mad at themselves for being so depressed and for, you know, not getting up and living their life and all the other things that come with depression. But I I could certainly see what you're saying with like, how can you really serve God or do anything really meaningful with your life if you're consumed by your own depression? And I think that that's part of the pain of depression. It's also part of the pain of having a loved one with depression because you see it happening and you want to say like, God, look, it's beautiful out. Just get up. Let's take a walk. Let's do something. And it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think the brokenheartedness too, in my mind is both the, I love what you said about the kind of personal vulnerability that brokenheartedness requires. And I think it's also about like living a life with your eyes open to the world. Like, how do you look at the state of the world and not be brokenhearted? There's, there's horrifying things happening in the world all the time. I mean, there's children going to bed hungry. There's people dying of curable diseases. I mean, there's just so much brokenheartedness in the world. And if you say you walk around your life without any brokenheartedness, then I don't think you're really walking around with your eyes open. You're living in your own selfishness. Um, and, you know, and, and I think your own um, insincere selfishness, as you said, if you're not even brokenhearted in your own life, then, you know, I mean, there's really something where you're walking around kind of bubble wrapped, but is that really living a life? I, I think that's so true. Um, but at the same time, you can be paralyzed by all of the heartbreak you see in the world. And that doesn't do any good for the world either. You can walk around and just, you know, sit and doom scroll and read all of the horrible things happening all around you um, and be paralyzed. You can't move because it all feels like too much for one person. Um, and so I think that balance seems to be exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, so at least what's coming into my head right now, and this could be wrong. Dr. Ashley, please feel free to uh, uh, correct me here or, or um, put a stop to this if it's, not, if it's wrong, but um, it feels like brokenheartedness is, is in some ways productive, like brokenheartedness leads to positive change. Like I'm brokenhearted. So I'm going to do something to try to admit, to fix it. Well, depression um, is paralyzing. Actually, depression usually leads to the opposite of like, I can't do anything. Like I'm stuck no matter what, and there's nothing I can do. Um, and I think maybe that's, maybe that's here. What's so dangerous about depression. What's so hard about depression, um, is the par- par- paralysis. Right. Here. Because like you alluded to before, depression and sadness are not the same thing. Sadness is a normal human emotion that we all experience. And it's important for us to experience. It gives us really important information about ourselves, what's going on in the world and gives other people important information about us just like you said, so we can actually mobilize. Same thing with anger. 
anger gets a really bad rap, but it's not the anger that's a problem. It's the behavior that comes from the anger if we're not careful. But anger spurs us to actually do something about the things that are important to us. And that's that's what living is. Really important. Really, really important. So I, I want to also hear your response also to this, you know, one concept. Of, this is great. I can like test out all the ideas I've given sermons about, but I, and then see if they're actually psychologically sound. Um, so this is good. <laughs> the Temple of Aaron. Um, so one thing I constantly talk about, especially when it comes to Tisha B'Av, um, is, is like making time for sadness. Like Rebbe Nachman talked all the time about um, mitzvah liot simcha tamid. It's, it's a mitzvah to be joyous always, except for like one moment of the day. And like, take your sadness. And he would actually say, cry out to God for a half hour a day and just let all the sadness, let all this be sad. Like, just let that sadness be there. And then then you can be happy the rest of the day, which, again, he says it in such a simple way that's sometimes frustrating. Um, But where are you with that? I totally agree. Part of what it makes me think of is if you think about like a child's who doesn't really know how to regulate their emotions yet. Like I, one of my kids in particular has very big feelings, both, both positive, negative, pleasant, unpleasant. And I've seen it happen with him. He will scream and cry. And then you see that it's like been released. And then he's the sweetest, most empathetic, most loving child. But if I had swooped in and said like, no, 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 don't feel that way. Stop. Everything's okay. No, no, no. Then it's just going to prolong the tantrum. So for adults too, like we skip over the feeling our feelings piece a lot of the time. One thing I prescribe a lot of the time, especially for people with a lot of anxiety and worry is worry time every day. You take 20 minutes every day and you worry You worry about all those things that your mind has been telling you all day long, because the more we try to avoid, whether it's anxiety or sadness, the more it's going to keep on building and building and building. So I could not agree with that idea more of every day, set aside some time to actually feel your feelings. So Tisha Bob is that day for the That's what I thought of when you said that, that like, for the year, here's the day, but like every day we have many versions of that. Absolutely. I mean, I think our prayer service is a lot of times that that moment, right? We start with all of this gratitude. We start with the Psalms and just having like this awe and gratitude to God. And then we get to like the meat of it. We get to the Amidah where we go and we go through the list of all the things that are is wrong in our lives and the world and with our families, all the things we're praying and worrying for. And then we end with gratitude again. I mean, it seems like if people were able to jump into the prayer service um, in a, in a real way, that could be like a really productive time of setting aside. Like it's important to, it's important to pray. It's important to worry. It's important to think about all the things that need to change in the world or that you're worried for in the world. Um, and then, and then to put it, yeah. in, put it into a little, but, uh, but forget, I hate to say it, but forget about the, the prayers, the prayer, you're hundred percent right. But the prayers, the prayers, okay. Prayer is one thing, but like all of our rituals, like everything we do, like we, the most popular thing in a Jewish wedding is what? Stamping on the glass. Like literally everyone's borrowing it because it's, I don't know, probably not for the right reasons. It's hilarious. It's like, whatever. It's weird. Whatever. You get to sing Havana Gila. Everyone likes that song. Um, but like, 
the real reason for stamping on the glass was to mourn the destruction of the temple, even at her happiest mm-hmm. moments. And like, I, I think from a psychological perspective, right? Like what that really is, is like, even at our happiest moments, there's like still pain, like to get to anything that is good, there's going to be suffering. And we all know planning weddings and the family tension and the things that could have been that weren't or didn't go right. Like maybe like even even when we eat, at, at, when we say a blessing after eating food, we're supposed to say on the Bavo, we're supposed to mourn the temple. Before. It's not because we're obsessed with the temple. It's because we understand that venting that sadness and giving us time to lament the sadness, even amongst while saying things are pretty good, right? Like celebrating is essential and it's built into all. Well, yeah. And sadness too, like it allows us to have empathy also. Cause like the other thing I was thinking about as you were talking about breaking the glass is like on Passover for the 10 plagues, when we take some wine out of our own glass and like, I love that. I love that part of the Seder because to have empathy even for people who've done you wrong and we can still have empathy, that's human and that's connection and connecting with other people. You can't do that without sadness, without, you know, difficult emotions showing up. Like in group therapy, people can make really profound connections with each other in a very short period of time because they're truly being vulnerable you know, you see someone who's having a hard time and they're being really real about that. You feel really connected to that person, but we can't do that if everything's always good and happy all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's a great segue into, into, <laughs> into, the, into community. I mean, yeah. group therapy is a kind of a hyper-focused community. Um, but I think that for us, when we saw the Surgeon General's warning on the epidemic of loneliness and the, um, the, prescription that that he was offering was um we need more social connection we need to invest in infrastructure for social connection um obviously for for us that is religious life and that's religious community um so i'd love to delve into that a little bit yeah really really important i remember on our notes this episode you wrote um being part of community this is uh, dr ashley being part of community to me is spirituality yeah I mean, that is to me, like personally, yeah, like I, that's the reason why I personally choose to stay connected to the Jewish community in my own community, you know, through schools, through synagogues is because there's just that sense of belonging, this sense of like commonality, and it's like built in for you, you know? And when you have to just go and like find it yourself through this club or that club or talking to someone at the playground, like, sure, it's possible. But yeah, it it gives you this sense of like, we're all in this together. We're all connected. There's something bigger than just me. So, yeah. So in in Judaism, uh, this is actually, I think, very hard for people to accept sometimes is God really sees us as a community. We sort of want God to see us as an individual, but God would prefer to see us as a community, right? So much so that all of our prayers are actually in the we form, right? If you look in our most solemn prayer, where we're like literally supposed to be standing one-on-one with God, what we call the Amidah, it's all in we, right? It's all, even when we, when we, when we, when we, uh, beat our chests on, on Yom Kippur about our sins, what we say, 
we sinned before you, not I sinned before you, right? That's so opposite of, in some ways, the American mentality where how should I, how can I be responsible for other people? Yet Judaism says, call Yisrael Aravim Zelazet. And, and here, at least for the Jewish people, all the Jewish people are mixed together, are responsible for each other, that your transgression, I'm responsible for just as much as somebody else, that we really are together with each other, which is so different than the way uh, modern life works, where we're all these like atomized individuals. Um, it's all about us, right? Yeah. I mean, if you even think about it, like expand it outside of just the Jewish community, like when we view our world as like a community, again, like then we can have empathy for people. Then we feel connected to people and, you know, it's helping somebody else. It it feels good for a reason, like evolutionarily speaking, like we're rewarded for doing good for somebody else so that we want to do it again. And that's because like, we need each other, you know, we need to be connected to each other. Yeah, and I think that is also something of like we need we need to help each other and be connected to each other, but I think we also need to like be annoyed with each other. <laughs> like I think I think that was part of the problem with the pandemic is like if we're all in our little Zoom screens and we're not even like seeing each other at the grocery store like at the height of the pandemic when we are really all in our own little homes and really not having to interact with anyone, like in some ways it was easier, right? Like I don't have to be annoyed by you. Know, I don't have to like deal with you. I don't have to compromise at all. I don't have to like sit in a sanctuary that's too cold because the person next to me runs hot, right? Like I don't have to I don't have to compromise at all. It's mm-hmm. only about me and my own comfort and my own satisfaction and my own joy. Um, and I think Judaism um, in an extreme way, like forces us into community. And like, that's really hard. Community is super annoying. Right? Like community, I have to, I have to like sit and like, I don't like the smell of the person's perfume next to me. And uh, they are, you know, talking through the sermon and they, yeah. and this person is like, I don't, whatever, all of the things that just living with other people causes annoyance and sometimes real disagreement. I mean, sometimes more than annoyance. Like they say that um, uh, religious communities are some of the last um, communities where people of different political Mm. beliefs are interacting with one another. And like, so sometimes it's not just annoying. Sometimes it's, I like really struggle with this person's actions and I really disagree with them. And yet I have to interact with them. I have to be in community with them. I have to see them as a whole real person. I think all of that has a lot of benefit. No, I was just going to say like having a willingness to experience that annoyance, you know, like I am willing to be annoyed with that person's smell and that person's views. And I'm willing to be annoyed with all that because of my values, because being here is important to me. And so just like we've been saying, like, it can't always be all good, you know, like you're willing to experience the difficulties for the things that are important to you. But that's like, a, can, I, can I just say that's a hard sell, right? And I think that's what's so hard about it is like, we, that shouldn't be our new tagline. Come to the synagogue. It's mildly annoying. <laughs> I have more to say about that. But anyway, um, no, no, but, but, but like, it's a hard sell because like, I think that's a lot of the problems with this is like, I I bumped into this with Zoom, right? Like it's easier, like there was this big thing during the pandemic and now it's just part of life is Zoom Minion, right? And we fought so hard against having Zoom Minion, but eventually the people went out and now we have Zoom Minion. And 
you know, we've won- we've gotten so much because it's so much easier. You don't have to get in your car and drive and you could just pop on the screen for 10 minutes. And you got you say your Kaddish, but you literally you don't talk to anyone. You don't you don't have to see anyone. Right. You get you do what you think that your real need is, which is to say Kaddish. But you actually don't realize what your real need is, which is to be in community. Like we don't actually feel that need as a short term need. And I think that's the problem It's like, you know, the short being being uncomfortable, being hot, being that's like the most short term need. I feel it so physically, but like our real needs, we don't feel in a short term way, or at least we're not connected to it. And and by the time we realize we're feeling it, it's over. Right. And 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 that's that's what's so difficult and constantly we make decisions based on our short-term feelings and not based on what we actually need which is this community thing right it used to be back in the old times right people all lived in the same village together they had come daven together three times a day together they would see each other in some ways the most important part of that was this conversations around davening of saying how are you doing Stu? how are you doing ted you know what's going on in your life you know and and the rabbi saying oh you're talking too much during you know what i mean like but having those real moments of community bumping in we don't bump into each other anymore and bumping into each other is like so important yet we do not feel that as an actual need in our daily life we only think about that when we reflect and we think deeply and I, that's really how do you get people to like actually feel their real needs in a short-term way like that, where it's actually effective, you know? That is really well said. Yeah. That like, we do make all these decisions based on how we feel right now or what we want or what we think right now. And kind of goes back to what you guys said in the beginning about like putting behavior first, you know, like you put the behavior first, you go to Minion, even though you'd rather sleep in a little longer. And even having that structure built in for you is that's helpful, even in and of itself, that we also lost during COVID in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the benefits that Judaism brings that we've lost is Judaism talks about obligation, not like things that are good to do, but like obligation. It doesn't matter if you don't feel like doing it, you have to do it. And that's such a hard sell in our culture today, because everything in our culture tells us we should just do the things that we want to do. We should just have that instant gratification. We should just, you know, pick out exactly what we want and like pick out, pick and choose and walk away. Um, And I think that's, it's such a hard sell, but it's the wisdom is there. And I think that is like what religion offers to a lot of people is having like this blueprint or having like these sets of ideas or rules that you don't have to come up with yourself. Because if you're just coming up with everything yourself, then it is going to be about what I think and what I feel and what I want to do. But like religion gives you a much, a much bigger framework than that. Yeah. I mean, that's what always tears me up when people leave Judaism or people say, I don't want to study. I don't want any part of it because I don't like religion or whatever they say. I'm like, you're leaving 3000 years of your people's wisdom behind of like the accumulated wisdom of some of those wisest and smartest people in the world to deal with challenges of life so that you alone can use your like. And I think for me is like, look, again, I'll bring up my OCD again. Like, I, I think one of the great things about it in terms of the therapy I, I, I still do for it is that it's kind of taught me how to like productively disconnect from my mind, like which is a really hard thing to do. But like my mind is thinking something, my whole body's feeling something. But I actually can disconnect from that and make my body do what it needs to do, right? And that is, in some ways, the most productive thing 
you know, that, that we can do to, to, to tackle loneliness, to tackle all, to tackle what we're talking about. And I think that that's part of what's special about Judaism is that it in some ways demands a conformity of behavior, but not a conformity of thought. Like I think the dangerous part of religion is when it demands a conformity of thought, when it says like, well, don't ask any questions, don't think for yourself, just like do what you're told. And I don't think, I mean, there's aspects of Judaism that like encourage, you know, you to believe certain things or think certain ways or hold certain values. But as we talked about at the beginning, like it's really about your behavior. So it's saying like, that's fine. You want to question God? You want to struggle with is God exists? Yes. Like, let's do that together. And let's do that together after Minyan. Like, let's pray. And then let's do that together. And I think that that's like the great balance that Judaism offers is that it's saying like, this is the behavior, like this is the expected behaviors. These are the obligatory behaviors that are really, really good for you. And let's still deal with like all of the struggle and let's not let's not close the, close the door to like figuring out your own, your own beliefs and your own thoughts and your own feelings. Essential, essential. Yeah. So much about this in society today. I think that there's a book coming out, you know, uh, all about how nobody hangs out anymore, right? <laughs> like nobody, nobody like, and these things are just essentially important. I, I think in the end, we're going to have to really think about like, how do we actually orient our society, especially as community leaders uh, for us, Rabbi Rachel, is like, um, you know, how do we orient our society to think first about the long term and think about the real, our real needs and not our short term needs? It's like, so it's such a difficult thing in pragmatic reality to do. I mean, like, literally, we still have Zoom Minion. I wish I would. In some ways, I wish it was gone. I really do. But because those short term needs are so essential to people and look. It does have its positives to it, obviously, accessibility, all those stuff. But like, I, I, I have, even I have to succumb right. to it, you know? Well, and I so. hear people talk a lot about, um, like, even if it is Zoom Minion, they're saying Kaddish for their parent or something, that even that is like a connection for them. And I think like, I mean, it's obviously different with Zoom Minion versus like social media, but anytime we use this technology to be like an extension of our real life, that's very different than just a total replacement, you know? And psychologically, if that's the, I think that's so dangerous in some ways about social media is like, it feels in the short term, like I am in community, but I'm not. It's like some synthetic thing that makes my body feel like I'm in community. But afterwards, I'm like, I actually didn't get that. I actually didn't feel that. And it had no psychological effect on me in that regard, but or think, at least a very small one. I think this is also where we differ. I mean, this is what my sermon, sure was, this is what my sermon was about on Shabbat was about, like, I think that the way some people, the way I interact with social media, I think is productive. Like I do find community. I find community of other parents, of other women, of other Minnesota transplants, of other Jewish female rabbis, like of all, like I find community so much broader than my little, like in my little world in a way that's really connective. Um, and I think that's what you were saying, Ash, like, you know, if you are using Zoom and social media to like, to expand your life and expand your connection, that could be a positive. Um, but if, as what you're saying, if you're using it to replace, you know, there. to replace real connection yeah. um, and to, that. and to hide yourself from real connection, that's where it can be really um, problematic and hard. Right. I think for me, like I recently deleted my Facebook and, and, and I think the reason I did it is because I wanted to feel loneliness. I wanted to feel sad. I wanted to feel like, I, because Facebook numbs those feelings for me. 
right? It makes me feel like I'm feeling it in the moment. And at least for me, it, it evaporates afterwards, or maybe it's just not enough, right? And that maybe I need more of it than some other people do. <laughs> um, but uh, so I actually deleted it purposely to feel more palpably the loneliness so that would spur me more to go and actually call a friend or to actually text somebody or to actually go and make it, uh, plans or something like that. But yeah, I just want to draw our attention. The Surgeon General, as part of their report, laid out six foundational pillars to establish a national strategy to advance social connection. And number four is reform digital environments. And they say we must critically evaluate our relationship with technology and ensure that how we interact digitally does not detract from meaningful and healing connection with others, which I think is exactly what we're saying. Yeah, a lot of times I'll ask patients, like, ask yourself this question, is what I'm doing taking me further into my life, like further into what's important to me, or is it taking me out of my own life? Because if we're just mindlessly scrolling on our phones for an hour, that's taking me out of my own life. And sometimes, hey, maybe that's what we need. Maybe not for an hour, but maybe I do need 10 minutes of just being scrolling and numbing out. We all numb out some way or another, and there's nothing in and of itself wrong with that. But when it's taking me away from my real life or away from the things that are important to me, and I'm spending all this time on my phone or even just all this time watching Netflix or drinking or whatever it is, then it's, then it's something different. But I agree with you, Smush, about social media. Like, And if you can find a community there because I think that is one thing that social media has been good for is it sort of normalizes what a lot of people were thinking and feeling and that they thought it was just them. But now you see like, Someone else has made a whole post about it, a whole meme, a whole cartoon. And you're like, oh my God, yes. And then you send it to your sister because you know she feels the same way. And it's like, oh, yes, totally. And then, you know, when we don't feel like we're the only ones with this particular kind of suffering, then we're no longer feeling so isolated and lonely. And then it is really helpful to have that kind of community. Absolutely. And maybe maybe part of it is taking what you learn on social media and bringing it back into your in-person real life communities, you know, that you take some of what you some of that feeling of connection and feeling of feeling really seen and saying, well, how do I bring that then into uh, my synagogue? How do I bring that feeling of being really seen and feeling really heard and validated in what I'm feeling and bring it into the other aspects of my life? Yeah, yeah. So because of time, I'm going to, there's a whole conversation about pleasure. I think we should have, but we just don't have the time. And I think there's something more pressing uh, that we need to talk about, um, uh, which is, you know, what can we do? Right. And I think we've been talking about what can we do, but I think uh, Rabbi Rachel and I, I realized, you know, very well that like synagogue is a place where people come a lot of times in order to, to get over the loneliness and, and to be able to connect to others and especially uh, so many people dealing with depression and anxiety. Um, so many people end up here and how do we make this? I'm going to, I hate to say, I have those, those girls in my mind, those, this 25%, one in four girls in our Hebrew school uh, coming in and maybe they have that suicide plan. Maybe they have that, that thing that I have no idea about how as do we as rabbis and, but even in a bigger conversation, how as we as, as Jewish community, like actually, help those people and and make this a safe place 
um, so we can together uh, mitigate this epidemic. I think it's, you know, Marcus, you often say like, you'll comment on how Rachel has this like magic that she connects with people and that like, <laughs> you know, you'll say I've, I've known this person for 10 years and Rachel talks to them for 10 minutes and she knows like more about them than I ever did. And I think that that's the most important thing. What's magic about that is actually making eye contact with the other person, listening, truly listening to what they're saying, welcoming them truly, because, you know, we talk about all the annoyances of being in a crowd or being in a group, but truly feeling welcomed and a part of something is huge. And as rabbis, like that's, that's a big, you know, sort of responsibility that you guys have is like making that place welcoming to everybody. And I think you guys do an amazing job of it, you know, and that's the first step in the door. At least now I feel welcomed. Now there's one less barrier to me taking part in the next thing. Yeah. I mean, we have a, you know, a little bit of a like countercultural philosophy here at Temple Baron. Like a lot of a lot of communities are saying like, we should get rid of membership and it should just be like, you know, because membership is exclusive and unwelcoming. And we kind of feel the opposite. We kind of feel like, no, we want you to like, feel like you're a part of something. We want you to feel like that we, you are, we want you here and we want you fully and not like, oh, I'm going to pick and choose which classes I take. Like I do at the community center. Like, no, we don't want it to be like, you're, you know, you're picking and choosing community college classes. We want you to feel like I am part of this. Like I am fully welcomed and seen. And like, it's not about the financial obligation. It's about feeling like I am a member, like I am part of this community and I have like full access to it and I can contribute to it. I can change it. I can, you know, like I can bring my whole self to it. Like, I think that there is something really powerful about like, not that we don't welcome guests who come and like for people who are just checking it out, that's great too. But like when people make the choice, like I want to join this, I want to be a part of this. I want to be a member here. Um, I think that's where people start to like, to believe it a little bit. Like it's easy. We joke that every synagogue says that they're warm and welcoming. That's like the the tagline on every single synagogue's website is that they're a warm and welcoming community. But like, what does that actually mean? Like we want people to take that step and be like, I am a member and I feel it. I know that I am welcomed and I am a part of this. And I think like it is sort of sensitive to still make people with mental health issues feel a part of the community when they have social anxiety and they don't want to get up on the bima and have an aliyah because that's just like really incredibly uncomfortable to them and maybe there's somebody there who's actually hearing voices you know and like they're lost in their own head like we don't know what other people are dealing with so like as much as we can, like welcoming people, meeting them where they're at, a balance between like, yeah, come and be a part of it, but also like, it's not pressure, you know, it's like, we understand that you are where you are at, everybody is, and we welcome you as you are, you know? Oh, absolutely. So I, I want to talk about one one thing while we have you here, uh, Dr. Ashley, and, and, and this has been on my mind uh, a lot. Um, and, you know, in in um, 
uh, I want to get her name right. Um, in in uh, according to my notes here, Dr. Jean Twenge, one of the, the main reasons she said that depression and, and anxiety is up so crazy high, what those years match up through 2011 was the year that the majority of American teenagers had an have an iPhone um, or some kind of smartphone. Um, and so, and she really connects it to having a smartphone, um, especially the social media available on it. Um, if we know that the smartphone and, and, and social media is at one hand, extremely useful, right. As, and especially even, even somewhat for, for gaining community as Rabbi Rachel beautifully spoke about, um, or Rabbi Smush, um, you know, <laughs> uh, can I say smush or just smush? Oh no, smush is totally fine, Marcus. Come on. We're not formal. Okay, good. Just wanted to make sure. Um, so uh if we know that it's somewhat useful, right? When but we know how sort how dangerous it could be, right? One, like when do we when do we give our kids smartphones? Yeah. Do we give our kids smartphones? Like is it is it like the is it like the telephone? Is it like you know, we wouldn't deny our kids uh, a, a, a landline, right? Like our you know, telegram machine or like, is it just technology that we have to just deal? Like what, wh where are you with this and 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 how do we deal with yeah. this? Yeah. Well, here's the big difference between like a teenager having this device and us having this device. Our brains are fully developed, especially that part of the brain. We're the only animals that have like this big forehead because we have this really developed frontal lobe, which is responsible for making good decisions, planning, kind of having an overall perspective. Well, that part of the brain isn't fully developed until your 20s. So you have these kids with like these devices, plus they have like this added impulsivity, this added sense of nothing bad can ever happen to me. So it is scary to me to think about my kids being at that stage. So disclaimer, my kids are not close to that age yet. So I have the luxury of talking about this as a hypothetical or someday in the future, but I don't want my kids having a smartphone until, I don't know, and maybe they're off on their own. I mean, I don't think that's realistic at this stage. So I don't know what the exact number is, what the exact age is, but I think that these kinds of phones, not only are they not meant for people with not fully developed brains, but they are preying on those undeveloped brains. There was a documentary on Netflix, and I don't remember what it was called, but it was about the makers of these apps and like how these apps are are made to be addictive. Like they're they're preying on our psychological, you know, shortcomings. And the creator of one of these apps has a two-year-old daughter and he said, they will not be using a cell phone, a smartphone anytime soon. Like he won't let his daughter use a smartphone and he's one of the creators of a very popular app. Um, so I don't know what the number is. I don't know what the answer is, but I would much sooner want to give my kids a flip phone for safety reasons when they can call me versus an iPhone. It scares me. Are you are you anywhere in this Rabbi Rachel who who loves uh, social media here and really especially because you have a, you do have such a positive relationship with it? Yeah, I mean it is so hard. I completely agree with with what Ashley's saying about like their undeveloped brains and at the same time, right? Like you don't want to make your kid the like social pariah. You want them to 
like be connected with their friends. Like if all their friends are talking after school by like DMing, whatever it's going to be in 10 years when Hattie's there. But like, you know, if they're all like, if that's how they communicate with one another, like through social media, like how do you cut them off from their friends? Like, how do you, like, are they going to be socially like exiled? Do you want them to have that full social experience and you want to protect them? I don't know what the answer is. Well, and I think like part of it is up to us as parents to monitor what they're doing. That being said, they know this world much better than we do. So like, they're going to know how to, you know, get around whatever parental controls we have in. Um, And also part of it is like, yeah, I don't want them to be exiled or feel like they can't communicate or be a part of the friend communication, but also like, you can't always, you know, that's not always like a good enough reason to me. Like part of the lesson is no, like this is a choice that's not right for our family. And we're going to have to figure that out together, you know? And again, I am like totally having the luxury of talking about this with little kids. So who knows what it's going to be like when they're actually at that age. But in my luxury of hypotheticals, that's what I would like to say. Yeah. I mean, to bring the Jewish wisdom in a little bit, like maybe it'll be a blessing to be able to say like, well, you have to turn it off for 25 hours. You can't, you can't use it on Shabbat, you know, like you at least have to have one day a week where you're not on it. And that's not our rule. That's, that's, that's just Shabbat. That's just Judaism. Like, and to be able to say like, this is the very clear rule and it's not, it's not something we are like deciding arbitrarily. This is, this is what our family believes. And this is what, this is our practice in our house. Um, so maybe that'll help a little bit to at least say like, there at least are, are limits around it. And you can remember what it's like for 25 hours to like play outside and not be on your phone and, um, and maybe tap into that a little bit. There's one to learn from before we, before we finish up for today. Um, uh, Ariella, one of our, our previous guests, um, who was on our last podcast episode, you might remember her, um, uh, she uh, grew up uh, uh, daughter, daughter of, of a rabbi. daughter of a rabbi, uh, you know, and and they were the, one of the few Shomer Shabbat people in their family and um, in, in, in their community, in their community. And, and, and one thing their, their her father did, which I think was so smart. And hopefully we're talking about it now is like because we're going to face a, a similar issue um, is uh, what, what she did to make sure that her daughter wasn't alone on Shabbat and came to hate Shabbat. Right. And hate, you know, Jewish practice. Was was he made his house the center of the hangout, right, and made sure to have everybody over all the time, so that the community was brought to her. Um, and I wonder if there's a similar solution here in terms of the smartphone. Like, you can have a smartphone that's fun, but maybe how do we lean more as parents into the physical community into saying like, we want you to hang out with your friends, have your friends come over our house and actually talk to each other, right? Like, maybe that that's part of the solution as well. I don't know. So. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Ashley, for being on here. Do you want to do you want to just kind of leave us with a concluding thought here? Of, do you have a sort of a concluding thought you want to leave us with? We'll, we'll, we'll let you have the, the last word here before we, we thank our friends. Um, so. I guess what we've been saying in a lot of different ways throughout the podcast is just that we it's helpful to make room for our difficult thoughts and feelings rather than to like shun them. You know, that it's normal for all of us to like have the full range of human emotion. Um, And that I think Judaism or religion overall 
is a really good way to kind of incorporate a lot of these ideas into your real life in a way that makes sense that you don't have to figure it all out for yourself. It's kind of like they're built in for you. Well, thank you so much for being on. We really, really thank you guys. It was so on. fun. And I, I, I hope you know you might you you might become a special guest where it might be a the call psychologist uh, button. Wait, could it be their rabbis and they're married and their sister? <laughs> <laughs> a different there, a different there. If I know that it's a different theory, then we're really, uh, I can't really do it. No more there. No more there. I can't do any more there. I can't do it. Uh, but I do remember uh, you always said when you were getting your PhD, like the dream job would be to be like the therapist. The <laughs> so this could be the therapist on our podcast. Yes, even better. Oh my gosh, I love it. They made it. Oh man. Well, well, just thank you so much for being here. We really, 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 really appreciate. It. Really difficult topic we talked today and. I think a lot of really uh, interesting uh, things came up. Um, I do want to say very quickly, um, if you're out there listening to this and you're feeling depressed or you're feeling lonely um, and you're in the Minnesota area, uh, come and uh, come to our synagogue, come to us. Uh, we want to be there for you. Uh, feel free to give us a call or text message. Um, we want to be there for you. Obviously, if you're in Cleveland, go and see Dr. Ashley. She's incredible. Um, and I'm sure she has all the resources uh, that you that you'll need. Um, we want to be there for you. You are not alone. I want to repeat that you are not alone. We are there for you. Okay. I want to thank our unbelievable uh, producer and editor uh, Jesse Ulrich from Rant Nine Productions, who always does such an incredible job. And of course, uh, our lovely uh, musicians and comedian uh, Colleen Deeker and uh, Jeffrey Baldinger for their un our unbelievable theme song. Uh, just thank you. Always remember, rate, comment, subscribe. All the wonderful. We just had a wonderful comment on our thing. We're so happy. We did. Someone left us a really nice review, and it like made our whole week. We were still we're still oh. talking about it. So know that you have a big impact on these two rabbis. You can do if that. You leave a review. You can make an impact by leaving a comment. So it's going to be great. Don't worry, Doctor Ashley already let, left the first comment on the podcast. So I still remember it. It was amazing. <laughs> um, so anyway, thank you so much, Doctor Ashley, and and everybody. Until next time, they're rabbis and they're married. Celebrate the words of Torah with Marcus.